Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. I want to start out with, and just we're just going to read the text. Um, Jer- again, this is Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 4 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and, my inherit- and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and follow- I'm sorry, the prophets prophesied by Baal following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look. And to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dung their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So, have you ever have you ever had a conversation with somebody? Have you ever tried to tell somebody something that they just didn't want to hear? I am, um, I dislike that. I, 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 the reason that I am an emergency room physician is because I could not be an office physician because I cannot tell people things that they shouldn't do. In fact, I benefit from stupid choices, right? Smoking bothers me not a bit because you're going to be my patient. Trampolines and four-wheelers and guns, I love them. I love them because you know what? They lead to you come. They're profit. They are profit centers for my, for my job. So I don't, I will, I will of obligation tell patients that smoke that they should not smoke, but I always start by saying, you've probably heard this before. But once in a while, I have to tell somebody sincerely that they have to eat a low-fat diet, and, it, and, it's, and it's painful for me because I do feel like a hypocrite when I do it. One time a guy came in, and, and he, was, he was in bad shape, and, and I had to have this conversation because... Clearly, he did not know what, what he was supposed to be eating. And I said, you have to eat a low-fat diet. And he said, I've been told that before, but what does that mean? He said, I've, told, I've been told I can eat chicken. I said, you can eat chicken, but you can't eat fried chicken. He said, okay, can I eat steak? And I thought about it. And I said, you know, that ribbon of fat around the outside of a steak, if you cut that off, you can have steak once in a while. And he looked at me so sincerely, and he said, that is the best part. And I said, that's disgusting. And he said... No, it's like butter in your mouth. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, well, butter is another item, but you got to cut that steak off, that, that, that fat off. And I said, have you tried eating salad? And he says, I don't like salad, but I like salad dressing. And I was like, well, we, we got a problem. So I went back to something I've been taught long ago, and I said, from now on, when you eat something, if it tastes good, spit it out. 
So we're going to be talking about Jeremiah today. Jeremiah had that job. He had to tell people what they didn't want to hear. Um, and he had to tell at the time when, honestly, when they didn't feel like they needed to hear it either. So if we go back, um, Jeremiah, Jeremiah was a prophet. I guess we've already talked about that. Jeremiah was not a bullfrog. He was a prophet in the, uh, in the, the ages before Christ, around 627 B.C., and he became a prophet around the age of 20, maybe, maybe the age of 17, if you go back and look at, um, look at the dates and how they work out. When he became a prophet, it was the 13th year of King Josiah of Judah. King Josiah was a good king. Uh, Judah had a balance of good kings and bad kings, and Josiah was undisputably in, uh, in the Bible a good king. He was a king who was trying to bring the nation of Judah back to worshiping God. But he, was, he, was, he wasn't successful because there was just too much momentum taking them away, away from God. And this was a crazy, tumultuous time uh, in history, especially for the nation of Israel. By this time in 627 B.C., that original country, that, that nation of Israel, that I, I refer to as the nation of Israel, and by this time it, it was actually the nation of Judah, that original country that had been formed when, when the Jewish people left Egypt, it has already split the northern half which kept the name of Israel, has been conquered by the Assyrian Empire, and it no longer exists. It, it, it essentially is what is, uh, in the New Testament, considered to be Samaria. The southern kingdom, it still existed. The southern kingdom was the kingdom of Judah because it was primarily the, uh, the tribe of Judah, and it was the tribe of Benjamin, uh, and the tribe of Simeon, and a few of the Levitical priests. And the tribe of Judah, it followed God, whereas the northern kingdom, it didn't. From the day the northern kingdom existed, until uh, the day it was destroyed, none of its kings followed God. But the, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, that had Jerusalem as its capital, it followed God on balance. It had bad kings and good kings, but it probably had enough good kings that, that at this time it was still independent. It was still on its own. And this is, this is kind of where, where, where Jeremiah takes over, where he starts to prophesy. And so Josiah is king at this time, and it's, it's 627 B.C., and what is happening is the world is changing because the Assyrian Empire and the Egyptian Empire are fading. Their, their light is fading, and there is the Babylonian Empire starting to take over. In 609 B.C., uh, Pharaoh Necho II comes in. And I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm a history guy. But Pharaoh Necho II comes in out of Egypt, and he is going to march through the land of Judah because he wants to aid the Assyrian Empire to try to balance the Babylonian Empire. And for some reason, King Josiah comes out and tries to fight against Pharaoh Necho II. And Josiah is mortally wounded, and he's taken back to Jerusalem where he dies. Uh, the Egyptian pharaoh comes to Jerusalem, and he installs his own king. And that is, that is it. That is the end of Judean independence. Shortly after that, the Babylonian Empire with King Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in and going to take over Jerusalem, and Nebuchadnezzar will make his own king. But at that time, when Josiah dies, it is the end of Judean independence. So if we take a step back, so that's the setting. That's what's going on here, is Jeremiah is starting at this time to tell the people of the nation of Judah that, that they need to change their ways and that their judgment is coming. In Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah is introduced and the purpose of his ministry is explained. And then we go on to Jeremiah chapter 2. And I, even though our, our text is verses 4 through 13, I just want to back up and start at, at uh, verse 1. And it reads, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness and a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruit of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. 
So God's speaking through Jeremiah. This is where God is making his case, as if like a, in trial, uh, in court, on trial. This is before Judah's conquered. You know, Judah's still, it's still independent. But God starts by saying, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, a land not sown. And again, when he says youth, he's not talking about these people's youth. He means the youth of the nation. When, when they were just leaving Egypt, when they were going through the desert, when they were going to this land that God was giving them. He's not referring to any specific one person. And God said at that time that those who harmed Israel had disaster come upon them. God defended Israel. He protected them. Israel Israel was God's chosen people, and God saw Israel as a bride, a picture that we continue to into the New Testament, right, where the church, and that's us, the followers of Christ, we are described as the bride of Christ. If you look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, it reads, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself and splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish, right? That's, that's us. That is, uh, <clears throat> we are Christ's bride. Sorry, I'm going to move ahead here a second. The, um, the point there, I guess, I was getting is that if we're Christ's bride, and, and Israel, the nation of Israel is Christ's bride. The, it's a picture type of issue right there. Um, in, in, this, in this setting, we are a picture. Well, Israel is a picture of us. Israel is a type of what is to come. Um, in the Old Testament, when God refers to the nation of Israel, he refers to them as his chosen, as, as they, are, they are descendants of Abraham. They are his bride. And we in the New Testament are referred to as all of those. So that's why... It's a picture of us, and we can take this, what God is saying to them, as, as words to us today. And I want to back up because it sounds a little bit, and I think sometimes we, as the, as the modern church, think that we've replaced, um, that we've replaced Israel, the nation of Israel, as God's chosen people, and we haven't. We are the bride of Christ. We are, we are the church right now, but, but Israel still has a place in God's plan for the future. If you look at Romans chapter uh, 11, yeah, sorry, I had to pull this up on on my phone earlier this morning. If you look at Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, Paul is making his case. Paul's talking about the remnant of Israel and, and what God's plan is for them and how, how the Gentiles felt at the time a little bit like they had replaced Israel. But Paul writes, I ask then, did God reject his people? By his people, he means Israel. By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin, and God did not, I'm sorry, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, Grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. 
Again, I ask, do they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. And then Paul goes on later in that same chapter to describe the nation of Israel as a cultivated olive plant where a branch was broken off and we as Gentile believers were grafted in. The idea that we're really more an offspring of the nation of Israel than we are actually Gentiles. The idea is that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. And then when you go ahead to Revelation chapter 7, uh, the passage there describes actually a 144,000 quote from all the tribes of Israel having a seal placed on their forehead. And that even stipulates 12,000 members of each tribe with the strange exception of the tribe of Dan. And what I'm getting at there, it's very, it's very I think it's, it's very detailed in God's plan that the nation of Israel still has a part in God's plan. And even though we today are the bride of Christ, just like they were, we haven't completely replaced them. And that was a long way to go, I'm sorry, but I think it's really important. It's a personal issue. I think that, I think that the modern church has used to some degree, that the idea that we've replaced the nation of Israel for anti-Semitic behavior and beliefs for a long time. And, uh, and I, I, don't, I think, obviously, any, any hate speech is wrong, but the, the nation of Israel will always be God's chosen people, uh, much as we are. But if, that's, but if, there, if, if the nation of Israel was, God, was uh, God's message that, or God's audience for Jeremiah, then we, too, today are. And so God starts by talking about our love for him as a bride loved him, right? They followed him in the wilderness. They trusted him as he led them out of Egypt through a land with no crops. And it's the same a lot of times with us, right? When we begin a relationship, um, we're full of energy and conviction and passion, right? Um, it's, it's, it's kind of a cliche, but, you know, when I was, when I was dating Beth, um, I, uh, I'm, I'm not proud to say it, but when I was dating Beth, I went to a yoga class. And uh, I went to a yoga class because Beth wanted me to go to a yoga class. Today, if Beth wants to go to a yoga class, she has a hard time getting me to watch the kids. I'll, I'll be honest, much less she never asks if I want to go. Um, and when we were dating, when we were dating, um, through an odd twist of fate, my roommate married Beth's roommate. Um, uh, and so Noah and I would go over to Beth and Alyssa's house, and Beth and Alyssa were great cooks. Beth still is. And they would make dinner for us, and it was phenomenal. Um, but it often lacked meat. And um, in the Johnson household, uh, you could get away with that for breakfast. But, but, but dinner, was pretty, dinner was pretty laid out. You were going we to have dinner, we were going to have meat. And uh, I would be very thankful and very appreciative. I would clean my plate, we would study, and then I would drive back to my apartment, which so conveniently was about two blocks past the McDonald's drive-thru, where I pulled through every single night. I mean, she... She had to wonder how I was gaining so much weight when she was cooking like that. And it continues. Anyway, but what happens is, is at times, as a relationship grows, we take that other member for granted, right? And, and in this passage, King Josiah is a good king. He's, he's a king of the, the, the nation of Judah. Judah, its capital was Jerusalem. It's where the temple was. And Judah had pretty good reason to believe that they were being protected by God because they had survived when the northern kingdom had not and we also tend to do this. We tend to backslide when we are confronted with comfort. You know, when we're under God's protection, when we're following commands, at least superficially, sometimes we start to slip and backslide. We, we tend to forget how much 
every breath we take is at God's approval, and we get complacent. We go into verse 5, which, which reads, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? The text there says, What wrong did your fathers find in me? What, what did I do that was so wrong that your fathers found a problem with it? And, and then why did they, they went after worthlessness and they became worthless? That is a painful statement because the Lord is saying that when we pursue worthless things, we become worthless. And it probably should make us reassess exactly what it is that we pursue. Jesus, uh, in Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Right? That's pointed at us because, because Christ is saying we're to season the world. We are to influence the world for Christ, and if we don't, we're worthless. We're, we're, we're worthless as salt. We're just simply meant to be thrown out. Jesus is saying what Jeremiah said, that, that we go after worthless things and we become worthless. Verse 6 goes on. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. By this time, the Israelites, they just weren't looking for God. They forgot that God had saved them, that, that he'd pulled them out of Egypt, that he'd saved them from slavery, that he'd led them through the desert to Israel. And, that, and then he had conquered all of the nations that were in Israel at that time, that were in that land. They weren't even curious any longer. Matthew Henry wrote of this passage, quote, those who desert religion commonly oppose it more than those who ever knew it. This idea that, that God has done so much for us, and yet we turn our backs and we don't consider it any longer, and sometimes are even hostile toward him. And then verses 7 through 8 go on, And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruit and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. So God just goes back through how he brought them. He brought them into this great land, this picture of milk and honey, and they ruined it. They defiled it. Uh, the priests, the officials, they didn't look for God. Uh, the prophets took up prophesying by Baal, one of the gods of their neighbors. Uh, the quick summary was simply that the leaders left and the people, the people followed him. And even now that King Josiah was back and he was trying to bring them back to God, the simple momentum of their sin kept moving them further and further away. So he goes on in verses 9 through 11. Therefore I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. God's making his case again. He says, here's my problem. Look to Cyprus. And Cyprus was as far east as they could imagine. Cyprus is a, it's a, an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Or look as far west as you could imagine, which was to Kedar. I'm sorry, as far east as you can imagine, Kedar. <clears throat> have you said everything, anything like this? Has any nation ever changed its gods? But, but Israel... The, the country that has the one true God has managed to throw away its God, its worship of the true God, for simple idols, gods that are no gods at all. And this applies to us now as Christians because, because we often turn from this life of following Christ when we get complacent for after years of following Christ, we slowly, slowly turn to our own gods, the gods of wealth, 
of lust, of addiction, of, of career and power, things that, that Jeremiah says are no gods. And then finally, Jeremiah sums it up uh, in, in kind of the, uh, the money verses here, verses 12 through 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So that is the message, and that's kind of the whole buildup of this passage is broken cisterns. God says, God, God says, I'm sorry, my people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. If you, if you Google, if you Google this passage, right, if you actually just Google broken cisterns, this passage will come up. If you, go, if you want to look for sermons or texts, uh, commentaries, broken cisterns is, is kind of the moral of this story. But God says, my people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and we, we've seen imagery like this before. In John 7, uh, chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then in John chapters 4, verses 13 through 14, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God talks about, the, 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 the phrase there is living waters, and that in, in, in the Hebrew text, living waters is, is kind of a separate word. It, if you can think about it, it means uh, something like babbling brook. It's the idea of moving water, uh, especially of a, a, of a spring out of the ground, to compare it to, to cisterns, to still water. And here Jesus is compared to water repeatedly, and, and that goes on, I, mean, I should say, Jesus is compared to uh, water repeatedly throughout Scripture, and that's a, it's kind of a good reason, right? Um, in the Middle East, it's arid. It's, it's desert. Um, the search for water was their obsession. It was, it was what determined where every settlement was. Um, uh, the, the, uh, the city of Jerusalem was fed by two springs, and, and without it, they, it couldn't have been there. They just they didn't get enough rain anywhere in the Middle East. Rainy days aren't bummers in the Middle East, right? People celebrate water. Here in the Midwest, when it rains, we kind of look at it as a day that we're not going to get much done, right? But in, in the Middle East... Rain is a blessing. And, and so because of that, they spoke in terms of water. It's, it's kind of hard to think about that Jesus was compared to water, not, not necessarily because of physical properties, but because of what water meant to people. And I think it's hard for us right now to relate sometimes because we don't have that limiting environment or that limiting feature in our environment. You know, we, here in Ohio, we've got plenty of water. Um, it, it, it gets hot and we complain about it, but it doesn't stay hot for too long. It gets cold, but it doesn't stay cold for too long. It's not like, you know, our, our motors freeze. It's not like we have trouble getting water in the winter because of freezing. You know, kind of the only thing that we have limiting in our environment in, in Northeast Ohio is a, is a winning professional football team. Everything else I think we can kind of take for granted. But we take, when we take water for granted, right, we, we, dump, we dump trash in it. Uh, we, we waste it. We put chemicals in it when we don't have a better way to get rid of them. But God spoke in terms of it. God knew what, what water meant to these people. And so, and so he was referred to as the fountain of living waters. And even if, even if it doesn't mean the same thing to us, it is something to think about. This endless fountain of fresh, clean water. Uh, a few years ago, our well went bad. And so for about a month, we, the water that came out of the tap was orange. 
and if you, if you had the guts to taste it, it tasted like a nail. And so this was great, you know, the, the idea of this fresh, clean water, it really would have mattered a couple of years ago to me. But, but what did they turn their back on? You know, what, what, what did they turn to? It was cisterns. And cisterns isn't even, they're not even something that we think about in, in this area today because nobody really uses them. If you're not familiar with it, cisterns are giant holes, typically dug in the Middle East, they would dig them in the ground and they would hold anywhere from dozens up to thousands of gallons of water and then they would line them with this plaster made out of lime that would, the idea being that it would hold water, at least it would leak it less. Um, we don't use cisterns much anymore. I, a few years ago, I was in West Texas, and, and there they have cisterns. They attach cisterns to the gutters of their houses because that's the only way they can get water. And it's a great, when it works, it's fine, but even, even at its best, cistern water is nasty. It's, it's stagnant, and if you've ever drank water that was stagnant, it doesn't, it doesn't taste very good. Uh, things grow in it. Um, if you, uh, if you drink much cistern water, you likely will come visit me for antibiotics in the emergency department. Um, and, and even then, God's talking about broken cisterns, the idea that these cisterns, don't, they, just, they don't hold water. It's the old cliche, you know, that something doesn't hold water. But it's, it's the idea that it rains, and you come and look at your cistern, and you have 100 gallons of water. But then the next day, maybe you have 75, the next day 50. It's this idea that it's a broken cistern. It doesn't hold water, and even, even the water it holds is no good. Several years ago when I moved to Ohio from North Carolina, I actually had a patient who, had, who came in, and we always, one of the things that we ask people is, uh, what kind of water do you have? Uh, because that makes a difference, especially if they've got a gastroenteritis type of complaint. And I remember I asked, so uh, do you have well water or city water? Because that's the way that we always ask, do you have well water or city water? And the lady thought about it, and she said, I have, I have cistern water. I, thought, I said, well, you've got to be kidding me. She said, no, I have a spring-fed cistern. And it was, about, it was about, I had been here for about six months, and I thought, my goodness, where have I moved to that these people still use cisterns? I mean, I moved here from a town called Rural Hall, North Carolina, and I thought that cisterns were backwards. But we don't, you know, as I said before, we don't have the cisterns. We don't have the obsession with water. It's, it's just not what we need. It's not the, uh, it's not the, um, it's not the limiting factor in our environment. We need it just as much as, as they did. But it's not what we think of when we think of, of what we absolutely have to have. So maybe a better idea, maybe a better concept is simply satisfaction. Um, Israel turned its back on God, which is the only thing that could truly satisfy. God is the only thing that can truly satisfy our lives. They sought satisfaction with other gods, the gods of their neighboring nations. Jeremiah had already mentioned Baal. Today, as Christians, we often turns our ba- turn our backs on gods, but we don't, we don't turn our back on God for other gods. Nobody today is worshiping Baal. Uh, we seek our own satisfaction. We seek our own fulfillment elsewhere. God says, I am the fountain of living water. That means he satisfies, he fulfills, he completes us. But we turn to our own gods. We turn to our own broken cisterns. We want to be satisfied elsewhere. We want to be completed by other means, things like career, uh, wealth, physical fitness, political affiliations, physical relationships, addiction, humans desire satisfaction. We are, we are built with that in us. We actually have neuroreceptors that, that are satisfied with when, when, when we have different thoughts, when we have different actions, when we experience different things. Uh, it's, it's why opioids work. It's why gambling works. All of these things satisfy these neuroreceptors that we have. 
And sometimes even when we do, when we do these things, I tend to, we tend to think about these things that are, that are, that are bad. You know, we tend to think about, uh, about addiction. We tend to think uh, uh, about lust like that. But sometimes we do this innocently. I think about young couples who say that their counterpart completes them. Because that's another idea of this idea that they satisfy. When, when truthfully, our satisfaction com- comes from God. We slave over our jobs because we want to be seen as having a strong worth, work ethic. Or we want to say that we're providing for our family. Or we obsess about physical fitness because we want to be our best us. But we will never experience true satisfaction or true fulfillment outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything else is just an empty cistern. Um, as I was preparing for this message, and this is, this is, a, <clears throat> this is a tricky path to go down. <clears throat> when I was preparing for the message, I always try to, I try to read summaries, I try to read commentaries, and I was trying to listen to some um, sermons on it. And a lot of the sermons, I think, could be broken down as having the title, America's Empty Cisterns. And as I, as I listen to them, it is the same idea. You know, it goes into talking about what we, as Americans, have put our value in. And the problem that I have with that is, is that God isn't targeting this passage to America, right? And I, as I go back, God targeted this passage through Jeremiah to the nation of Israel. And today, God is targeting this passage to us as Christians. And, and the problem is that I've actually seen it even on, I, I saw one time that it was, a, it was a, a sermon that was given right near the 4th of July. And it was, a, it was kind of a patriotic thing and somewhat an, and sort of a, an anti-patriotic message that was, here's what's wrong with America today. America has these, these empty cisterns. America has this problem where we seek we seek satisfaction through lust. We seek this satisfaction through, through wealth. We seek satisfaction through, through addiction. And the problem with that is, that I see, is that we do. But this passage wasn't targeted at America. This passage isn't meant to be a political message. It's not meant to be run on political ads on Facebook. This passage was targeted as the church. And the problem that I have is, is that when we do that, we give ourselves a get-out-of-jail-free card. We give ourselves a pass. Because what we're saying is, if America were more like us, if America were more like the church, we wouldn't have these problems today. We wouldn't have the divorce rate that we have. We wouldn't have the poverty rate that we have. We wouldn't have the homelessness that we have. Because Americans would be more like Christians. And the promise, if Americans were more like Christians, we'd probably be in the same boat that we are today. Um, we have an issue with empty cisterns. And we have to, as a church, and as people, recognize what the empty cisterns are. I put together, and again, these are some numbers I just didn't really like, that I don't like. I've never liked numbers where you try to extrapolate what giving would be. But my issue here that I was getting at was, as, I, as I've gone through this, is, is that in America, we have these empty cisterns. And so much of it, I think, has to deal with, with personal wealth, with personal power, with, um, with career, and as I look at what, what, did, what, did, what was Christ's message, what is God's message to us that we as the church are supposed to, uh, to obey, and there's a lot of different controversial messages that you can pull out, but I think James 1.27 is probably the least controversial. James writes, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. 
right? It's the least great. It's not controversial. We are to look after orphans and widows as the church. A study released one year ago, so during the COVID crisis by Gray Matter Research, it shows that 13% of evangelical Christians tithe. 13% tithe. And tithing means giving 10%. So 13% of evangelical Christians tithe. And that half of evangelicals give away less than 1% of their income. Per capita, Christians right now give 2.5% of their earnings as tithe. Unless you think that that's because it's a COVID time, and so it's, it's rough, you know, we don't know, there's inflation and all this. In the Great Depression, the number was 3.3%. And that's just of Christians. That's not America. That's just Christians. And that's actually, that's evangelicals. And, the, and these are, the numbers get fishier, and it's a hard subject to measure, but they put together simply some figures of what could happen if we as evangelicals tithe 10%. Likely that would mean $165 billion dollars for churches to distribute just from United States churches. 25 billion would relieve global hunger and starvation for one year, right? And that's you just back to James saying, take care of widows and orphans, right? 25 billion would relieve global hunger and starvation. 15 billion would solve world water access and sanitation issues. And that's not, that's not for a year, that's solving those issues. That's 15 billion. 1 billion would fund overseas missions fully for a year. And again, widows and orphans, that's sharing the message of Christ to people who do not know that Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. And that leaves $100 billion here for better chairs, for nicer tables, you know, for meals afterwards. But the problem is that we as Christians, we see this as an America issue. And, and, and it's, I know that we don't all, but I just, I, I saw it so many times as I was reading this. It's not an America issue. It is, a, it is an us issue. We have no control over what America does. I would love it if every resident of the United States followed Jesus Christ, but the truth is they don't. And the only people we have control over, the only people we can influence, are people inside of this building. Our first goal is to spread the message of Jesus Christ. And, and, and then it is to take care of widows and orphans, and we're not really doing either very well. So back to the... Uh, sorry, there was my sidetrack, but... Then back to Jeremiah's passage in the empty cisterns issue, <clears throat> as it couples, as it kind of couples on to my issues with, with wealth and power. At Jeremiah's time, you know, Jeremiah, when he talked to them about their empty cisterns, his message was really focused on their pursuit of Baal and other gods. And what's, what's remarkable, especially to a history guy like myself, is that that was about to change in Jeremiah's lifetime. Because when the Babylonians came in and they took the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah by then, back to Babylon, everything changed. There was no longer the temple. And the reason that Jerusalem existed till then was that the temple was there. And every day, animals were sacrificed on that altar. And you look at it today, and every, when I was a kid, this would hit me like, how weird that was. I'd go through the Old Testament, and they had all these rules about how you were to sacrifice these animals. And I think, it's nuts. Like, today that would never happen. And and God saw to it that through this Babylonian exile, that is when it stopped. They got to Babylon, and there was no longer an altar. Some went to Egypt, and there was no longer an altar there. And that was when synagogue worship started. And synagogues, you know, today, the, the, the people of the Jewish faith still worship in synagogues. And it's very similar to our church. The word synagogue in Hebrew basically means to come together. And that was the idea. When they were in Babylon, they didn't have the temple. They had to come together, and they came together in churches, and then eventually in separate buildings that were synagogues. And when we next see the nation of Israel 
for a little bit, they're rebuilding. Some of the, some of the remnant came back, and they rebuilt. They rebuilt the city of Jerusalem just toward the end of the Old Testament. But then at the start of the New Testament, when Jesus comes on the scene, suddenly their cisterns are different. No, nowhere in the New Testament does Christ rail about the worship of Baal, right? Their empty cisterns are the empty cisterns we have now. It was their treatment of the poor, their pursuit of wealth, and their pursuit of power. They had the same, they had the same empty cisterns we have now. It's all changed just in really that, in the lifetime of Jeremiah. The question is right now is though, you know, what do we do about it? Once we know we have empty cisterns and we know they've been around for, for a few thousand years, right? The answer is simply recognizing the problem, recognizing what are our empty cisterns, and that is, what are we putting in place of God or what are we allowing to interfere in our walk with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? Is it our job? Uh, is it <clears throat> the idea of the perfect family? Is it our pursuit of wealth or power? Is it our relationships with others, physical and otherwise? Our pursuit of the perfect image or reputation? Is it addictions? You know, how is it that we're seeking false satisfaction? How is it that we're seeing, seeking satisfaction from somewhere that is not the living water of Jesus Christ? And whatever it is, we have to see it for what it is. It's a broken cistern that doesn't hold water, and it's a wall between us and the fountain of living waters, right? So I just hope that this week we can reflect and pray and keep our hearts open for God to reveal our open cisterns. I'm just going to close in prayer. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this, this morning, everyone that's here. Uh, we thank you for our, our brothers and sisters in Christ here and worldwide. We ask, Lord, that you'd bless this morning uh, in the meal coming up. We ask that you'd watch over us, that you'd bless the, uh, uh, the backyard blast this evening, and that it'd be a great time, and that you would be glorified. Thank you for all your wonderful gifts and blessings. In Jesus Christ's name, we pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.